0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Today we are going to be hearing from folk music preservationist Sam Hinton. Welcome to the Music History Project, where your hosts, I'm Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino,
1: and Ashley Allison.
0: All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4000 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to check out any of our other content that's not featured, head over to nam.org/library.
2: Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. This is a uh, very exciting podcast for me uh, to have the opportunity to share with you what I consider uh, one of my favorite interviews that we've ever conducted. Going back to 2003, I got the chance to sit down with Sam Hinton, who I new at the time, mostly for his 1947 recordings for the Library of Congress and Folkway Records, 56 songs, I think, um, recorded at that time, including Old Man, Adam, which was a big hit in 1950. So that's how I knew this guy and I was all charged up and excited and I was in for quite a great surprise to get a depth of knowledge from this guy just about the process that so many people like him at that time during that era were working so diligently to document folk, and roots music in America. Um, And uh, it was such an exciting experience for me and one that I'll never forget. So I'm so excited that today we get to share this experience with you.
0: Yes, and what an experience it'll be. Um, It's very interesting that Sam was uh, very into preserving folk music and recording folk music, but was also studying zoology and had kind of a dual life going on, which is super cool. And something that we've seen before in the music industry, people having a passion for animals and uh, biology, but then also bringing it into the music world, so cool to see that. And of course, we're psyched about him preserving music because that's what we're all about here at Nam and at the Resource Center. Um, So just really excited to listen to this interview today.
1: And so to start off uh, this interview, we're going to hear a little bit from Sam of just his background and kind of where the dual life that we've been talking about of zoology and music kind of came from and and how that developed in uh, his childhood into his adulthood. So uh, here we're going to listen to Sam Hinton.
3: First of all, Mr. Hinton, thank you very much for inviting me to your home here.
1: Thank you for coming here.
3: It's very interesting to us to uh, get a perspective on your perspective. And I think that a good place to start would be, could you help me understand a little bit about your family, perhaps your parents and your grandparents and where you personally sure. grew up? Anytime you're ready. Okay.
4: Okay. Well, I was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma back in 1917. Um, we didn't live there terribly long. And I think before I went to high school, we had moved back to Texas, which was my mom's native ground. And we lived in a little, my dad was a civil engineer, and he worked in a number of different places and finally got a job centered in Crockett, Texas, which is a small town of 5,000 people in East Texas. And we moved there. Now, that's where I went to high school. But my mother's father, Judge Duffy, lived in Beaumont, Texas, and we spent a lot of time visiting him. I used to spend most summers there and so forth. So I've always felt of myself as more of a Texan than an Oklahoman. (laughs) And um, actually, while we were in Texas, um, I I went to Texas A&M College for a couple of years. I was a zoologist, studying zoology then. And um, that's when I really got involved in folk music as such. Before that, I just sang songs that I wanted to sing, (laughs) didn't pay much attention to the genre or anything like that. I think what really teed me off in that direction was uh, Carl Sandburg's book, The American Songbag*, that came out in 1927. My older sister, Mary Jo Negi, was an artist in Philadelphia at the time, and she sent me a copy of his book as a birthday present something. And that, that made me realize that most of the songs I knew were folk songs. So when I went to a and I started really going into that a lot.
3: How was that genre of folk music defined at the time?
4: It was defined as music generally had not been uh, influenced by television or radio. Of course, there was no television then, but by radio or phonographs. East Texas was a wonderful place to grow up in for anybody interested in music because there was a a very strong black population there. And uh, there were two Southern traditions, the Southern white tradition and the Southern mountain tradition. Uh, East Texas was the home to a lot of people who had lived in the Ozarks and had migrated there in the late 1800s. And I got to know a lot of those. Um, So I just grew up spent my formative years there in Texas. Uh, as I say, I was wanted to be a zoologist, and mainly what I was concerned with was <laughs> going to Africa someday to catch big snakes and things like that. So I spent all my time out in the field, and I got to know some of the local black farmers, particularly, who lived around Hurricane Bayou, which is where my favorite place for collecting snakes and turtles was. And um, so I got to know a lot of them, and that's what made me so happy when Carl Sandburg's book came out, because a lot of the songs in that were songs that I had heard there.
3: Mm.
4: Also, when I was in Crockett, the Crockett men had a baseball team that used to go over to Huntsville to play with the prison team. Mm. And I went there a couple of times, and the prison was a, a real hotbed of, of folk music. Mm. I didn't know that when I first started going there. Later, I realized that uh, there was a just tremendous amount of music going on there. That was, by the way, where Alan Lomax and his father did their first collecting in the East Texas prisons. Too. Right. Yeah. Interesting.
3: Uh-huh. Did you know that at the time?
4: I didn't know that at the time. I didn't meet them until my dad got a job in Washington, D.C., and after two years at A.M., I I left college and hitchhiked back to join the folks in Washington. <laughs> and uh, I heard that a fellow named Leadbelly had made a lot of records for the Library of Congress, so I went to the library to see if I could find out anything about his records. And then I met there Professor Lomax and his son, Alan. And Alan and I became good friends immediately, and he invited me to come back and make a bunch of records for the Library of Congress. And um, Unfortunately, I, my sisters and I appeared on the Major Bowes radio show, and I was sent on the road with one of the Major Bowes vaudeville troops before I got a chance to go back and do that job. So it was over 10 years before I got back to Washington. Is that right? And by that time, uh, the Lomaxes had left. Professor Lomax had died, and his son, Alan, was an independent worker and uh, had moved to New York. But um, I fell in with the then curator of the Archive of Folk Music, and he said, well, why don't you come in and keep that date? So I did. And... I recorded about 58 songs for the Library of Congress back in 19... This is in 1959, I guess it was. See, I I came to work here at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography to be the curator and director of the Aquarium and Museum. And um, I had been director of the museum in Palm Springs, California up till that time. Mm. And then... They said we they were going to build a new aquarium and museum here, and so Dr. Sverdrup, who was then director of the Scripps Institution, sent me on a road tour to visit all the great museums in the country. and I was happy to go back to the National Museum in Washington where i had uh, I had worked there when Dad was living in the town as I was a sort of an artist and illustrator drawing pictures of snake scalation, which is right up my alley. <laughs>
3: Tell me about your, um, to back up just a bit, your um, first introduction to music. I know that you got your first harmonica when you were rather young. Yes. But did somebody else in the family play a musical instrument? Yeah,
4: my mom was a very fine musician. She played the piano. Hmm. And um, she was raised in Gatesville, Texas, in the central Texas. And um, mom was awfully good on the piano and was not scornful as many classical musicians were of other types of music. She played good ragtime, for example. And we had a lot of popular music at home, uh, sheet music and things like that. And mom we could, was a very good sight reader. When she, before she was married, when she was about 17, she was selected as the Texas representative to Chautauqua, New York, and uh, went back there to represent Texas as, as a musician.
3: Interesting.
4: You, so she had a piano in your house? Oh, you yes. We had an old Iverson Pond piano.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and tell me about your, uh, your harmonica and what led up to that.
4: Well, when I was a kid, I was kind of difficult, I think. Mama wanted me to study violin and to be a good musician. But I, <laughs> I kind of rebelled about things like that. I, 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 I like to fill glasses half full of water and play on them like xylophones and things like that, and uh, when I was about five, Mama took me to Jenkins Music Store in Tulsa, where we were living at the time, and um, bought me a 50-cent Hohner Marine Band. She said I was playing Turkey and the Straw on it before we got out of the store. <laughs> that was Mama's story always, anyway. So I grew up learning to play the harmonica. My bro- older brother, Alan, who died in an automobile wreck in 1935 in Texas, um, introduced me to one of his friends named Floyd Bowles. Floyd told me about using the tongue on the harmonica. That was, I must've been about six then. I hadn't thought about it using my tongue. And that led to developing a kind of unique style, I guess, on the harmonica playing square harp. Not, not, I didn't play a cross harp. I didn't do blues types of things until much later. I never did do them very well. Um, this led to developing what George Winston, the piano player, calls a stride bass. I had never heard that term, but I, I'd use the harmonica and with the left side of my mouth blow a bass note while blocking off with my tongue between there and the melody note on above, above someplace. And then when I lift my tongue, I'd get the chord. See, harmonicas are made so that when you blow on a number of holes, you have got a tonic chord, and you're drawing on your breath, and you got a dominant seventh, and that's enough for a lot of folk music. So that's the way it all started. I, I remember my early life in Tulsa uh, was mainly a <laughs> fight to get a new harmonica every every month, and on my allowance it was hard to raise that fifty cents. I, I did much better when I started selling Saturday Evening Post and Ladies' Home Journals. I, I got to be what they call a master salesman, and I made a dollar and twenty cents a week clear. And uh, that I could, with that I could buy all the harmonicas and penny whistles and things I wanted, really. (laughs) Of course, those were Depression days, and uh, Dad wasn't making very much money, not much salary. He was a writer and illustrator for the National Petroleum News, as well as a civil engineer. And um, I don't know how much he was making. I know after we went to Texas, his salary was $80 a month. And that was not very much, <laughs> even then. For, there were five kids in the family.
3: Did any of your other brothers and sisters play instruments?
4: Um, my brother got to be a pretty good drummer before he died. Mm-hmm. And um, he was mostly interested in, well, I, I don't know what we called it then. It wasn't jazz. Jazz was kind of a bad word among swing musicians that came a little later. The swing people said that jazz, they'd listen to anything that was corny, and they'd say, jazz. (laughs) (laughs) After I toured with Major Bose shows for about a year, I got with another show called Ted Mack's Precision Rhythm Review, and it was an orchestra. And they let me play the guitar in the orchestra set up on the right-hand side of the stage on the back riser. And just before my time came on i could slip off and change my costume and come out as texas sam hinton and sing my folk songs (laughs) that was back in the late 30s
2: well you guys i hope you are enjoying this interview um fantastic stories what a great history and as mike pointed out at the top of the podcast um sam really had a dual life Uh, A lot of attention uh, paid in this interview to his music side, of course, uh, for obvious reasons. But I was always so compelled to learn more about his marine biology uh, side of his life, the zoology. Uh, You know, he wrote a couple of books, one of which came out in 1957, I think it was, uh, called Exploring the Sea. And he did another one called uh, Seashore Life of Southern California, I think, about 1969. So real deep. You know, you don't just write books about that because you have nothing else to do. You know, he obviously had a lot of knowledge and a lot of passion for that. Sam was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and um, raised actually in Crockett, Texas, where he and his two sisters uh, formed a group called the Texas Trio. Uh, and in 1937, they won the Major Bose Amateur Hour, which he just uh, mentioned. And for those of you who aren't familiar with that, that was a uh, talent show basically on radio and then later on television that was run by this guy named Ed Bowes, who was a huge sort of superstar on radio for many, many years. His talent or amateur hour ran from 1934 to 1952. Um, And probably the most famous person who won that contest was this skinny guy from Hoboken, New Jersey, named Francis Sinatra. Um, So um, a really great program. And if you get exposure on that, kind of like the um, Arthur Godfrey show that we talked about in the previous podcast, you really had something. You were approached by agents, and you got record contracts. I mean, it was a big, big deal back then. And so among the things that came from that for young Sam was the opportunity to work for the Library of Congress. And one of the things that they wanted him to do was to find and help preserve folk music, American roots music, as we sometimes call it. And so he traveled around and met various people and would record their music. Um, as mentioned earlier, he recorded uh, 56 songs for Folkway in the uh, Library of Congress in 1947, and that was sort of the beginning of his involvement. That I think lasted his whole life. He it was something he was very passionate about. You know, when I met and interviewed him in 2003, he had the biggest library I have ever seen in an individual home, I think, in my whole life. And every single one of those books, I, there were marine biology books in a different location. The one I'm thinking of is two full uh, walls of shelves from as high as you could reach all the way to the bottom and nothing but folk music. Songs, either songbooks or lyrics, It was unbelievable, the collection. I believe all of that now is part of the UCSD library um, in San Diego. But what an amazing! Adventure He had his whole life just seeking every song he could think of and going into small towns and, and finding people who would say, hey, yeah, there is a guy who sings folk music. He lives in the cabin on the other side of the hill. He'd go and check him out and oftentimes learn from him and learn where those songs came from. And he found a lot of um things that were common you know the the melody might be the same but in two different counties they're completely different lyrics so it's just a really an amazing opportunity that he had he also mentioned the guy who did the very same thing uh, on a much probably broader scale and more high profile scale and that was alan lomax um i was joking but it's the truth i was telling um Ashley, that I've read a couple of books about Alan Lomax, and there's actually seven of them in my own library just about this guy. So he was much higher profile. Uh, I didn't get a chance to meet him, although I wish I had. He passed away just a year before this interview took place in 2002. And he had a very similar career, but... um, because he was funded, uh, Mr. Lomax was funded completely by the Library of Congress for decades and decades, he had the opportunity to really sort of wave the the, the flag for folk music and roots music and blues uh, to the point of bringing wider attention and wider audiences to people that we now know very commonly, Robert Johnson, Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger, Burl Ives, Leadbelly, um, all of those were people that, um, were had recorded and had some success, but not at the level we think of them now as all legends of American roots music. And Alan Lomax had an awful lot to do with that. So um, Sam sort of fell under that sort of umbrella and did the very same thing, and was so very, very proud of the people that he met and he got to promote, and the songs that he got to keep and share with other people. And I think that that's the most compelling part about Sam Hinton to me, And the flame that I think continues, that uh, hopefully you can, uh, you're listening today and you're gleaning from as well, is that passion to keep these songs
1: alive. Very well said, Dan. (laughs) I think you're as passionate as Sam is about this folk senior (laughs) and kind of getting back into the interview. Uh, we're going to hear a a little bit more about that passion that Sam had, uh, with folk music and, and a little bit more of his, um, his thoughts on folk music and what the definition of it is and, and where it comes from, uh, and, uh, and just kind of his musings over that. So, uh, here's a little bit more of the Sam Hinton interview.
3: I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about um, your perspective on um, folk music and some of the things that you've done in that arena. Um, perhaps we could start with um, your your thoughts about how the education of folk music. Why is that so important, and where did it sort of start? Mm-hmm.
4: Well, I don't think there is enough education about folk music going on. Um, I think, in a way, I was very lucky as a performer of folk music because I didn't compare myself to anybody else. Like when I first took up the guitar, that was in my freshman year, at the end of my freshman year at Texas A and M College. I, I only played harmonica on a bunch of other instruments, but um no guitar. But a friend of mine lent me his guitar over the summer. And I was the idea was that I would learn to play it and then teach him the next year. His name was Rollins Colquitt. He never came back to school. <laughs> so I still have that guitar. That was the one I used in Washington for a long time after we moved there. And it came to pieces in the car on the way to the Major Bowes. A radio program. My dad was driving my two sisters and me up. My two sisters and I formed the Texas Trio there in Washington, D.C. and we we got, oh, we were doing pretty well singing old turn-of-the-century songs and mm-hmm. folk songs, old Texas folk songs. But um, I've always been interested in this idea that folk music is the natural expression of people who have not had a lot of musical training, and um, I, I could have had musical training, but I just I seemed to spurn it. <laughs> didn't didn't want to do that. And um, it, it, to me, it's it's a great um, democratic field. <laughs> the idea of folk music is. Mm. We used to equate folk music with. Lack of education, for example, in England uh, the the term folk music was first uh, brought about in eighteen forty two I believe by a an English scholar. Uh, up to that time, they'd used popular antiquities as the, the only closest thing to that what he meant by folk music and what he meant was the music of the of people who were part of a culture in which There was a classical tradition in which there was literacy, but the people themselves were illiterate and unfamiliar with the classical tradition. And there was a lot of that in England at the time. Cecil Sharp became interested in it about 1898 or so. Mm. And um, he started doing a lot of collecting. I think our ideas now about folk music are a lot more... um, a lot more Catholic, you might say, and not quite so... uh, harsh about what's folk and what isn't folk. My own definition today is folk music is what you find in the records that are in the section labeled folk music in the big record stores. (laughs) That's about the closest you can come to it.
3: (laughs) Well, what do you mean by that?
4: Well, I I just mean that... um, Well, I, I would say, for example, that jazz is a form of folk music although it's done by literate musicians and uh, <laughs> this, this business of requiring illiteracy as one of the uh, requirements for being a folk singer is one of the things that I first learned to, I, to get rid of. I didn't like that idea. Um, my good friend Jean Ritchie, who is, was raised in Viper, Kentucky, is a fine folk singer. And she was raised in a real folk tradition. When she went to England and visited Maud Carpalis, who was the head of the museum of uh, Cecil Sharp's books and things, mm. and um, she was not accepted as a folk singer because she knew how to read and write.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
4: but now... By by the way, when Jean was there, she made some fine recordings called Field Trip. And she was interested in... She had a scholarship of some sort from one of one of the big fund grinding organizations to um collect songs in England that might be ancestral i mean might represent ancestral forms of the songs that she had grown up with in Kentucky, and that's what her record field trip is all about. Jane is about my age, and she's better than I am physically she is able to still travel around and sing. I've given up public performances in the last few years, last year, actually. But Gene still gets around very well.
3: What is it that you personally learned from some of those... What I've come to learn about you and talking to people is that as interesting as it is to hear you play, it is to hear you talk about... Hmm how a certain person that you met was inspirational to you or a certain song and what that meant to you. How important is that in your in your estimation of why people like music to begin with? I mean you have to get sort of passionate about it. And and the second part of that question is, can you give us an example of somebody that you met that was inspirational to you on a certain way of playing or a certain song that means something yeah. to you?
4: For one thing, it, it's important to remember that um, folk music was not a popular form of music when I was a kid. Hmm. and uh, When I first started playing the guitar, for example, I didn't know anybody else that played the guitar. So I, I worked out my own method of playing it. And uh, I found out years later that Alan Lomax plays very much the same way, and he was raised not very far away from me in Nacogdoches, Texas. (laughs) So there's something in the water, I decided, that made us play that way. But, um, yeah, I admired the simple straightforwardness of the, uh, the idea was that uh, folk musicians at that time were not performers. It was just every mother that sings to a child is singing, is a, is a folk musician, in a way, singing lullabies.
3: Does folk music, um, in your definition, have anything to do with the heritage of the person who's singing it?
4: Well, I would say that folk music is largely a matter of style, and that you do music the way, the way your culture does music. <laughs> and the... Um, this includes pronunciation of words and, and uh, rhythm, types of accompaniment, or lack of thereof, and so forth. So I, I think it's a very individual thing. I realize now that um, I was, well, I, I was literate and so forth, <laughs> and read from earliest childhood on, and knew the, a lot of traditions, I was still a member of the East Texas uh, folk tradition, I think.
3: Mm.
4: But I I, I couldn't class myself with the people that I studied as folk musicians. For example, somebody that had been raised in the hills of Arkansas and never had been to a theater or anything, never heard television, never heard records or radio, even. Mm. Uh, There's no question about what he did was folk music. And a lot of the farmers, like Mr. Eden, that I've always remembered in Crockett. And the the black community was even more enlightening to me, I think. And um, this was quite unusual at that time to have a a white boy that would consort with black people. It was very much frowned on. I was very much afraid my father would hear hear about it. I used to go out to Hurricane Bio, and there was a, an old couple out there, that, uh, sharecroppers, that um, <laughs> they, they kept a milk can full of buttermilk lowered into the well to keep it uh, cool. And the, the woman of the house made salt rising bread. And I used to time my reptile hunting expedition so I could have lunch with them. <laughs> but I was scared to death my father would find out about it. <laughs> He, he was an old southerner dad was raised in georgia and louisiana and uh, mom was a lot more open in her relations with black folks i remember in this automobile accident killed my brother in 1935 killed my brother and his wife and very severely injured my mother she had both legs broken and her right arm broken and her scalp was nearly torn from her head and uh, well, she after she left the hospital and came back home to Crockett, she was uh, in bed and was often visited by our black neighbors who would sometimes bring her lady peas and things like that that they knew she liked. They they weren't out for any money or anything. They were just, just nice people. So Mom was uh, pretty influential, I think, in my attitudes toward the folk people. But as I say, in East Texas there were... Social divisions there were the black the black culture and the white culture as represented by upper class people in Crockett and the white culture is represented by the more or less farmer types from Arkansas and then there was the cowboy tradition and the Cajun French tradition and that was especially strong in Beaumont where my grandfather lived Judge Duffy. And I used to spend a lot of time with Deary and Judge. Deary was my grandmother, his wife. And um, th- that's f- quite close to the Louisiana border, and there are a lot of Cajun French-speaking speak- people around there. In fact, my first accordion was a Cajun-type accordion that my grandfather got from one of his friends to order. Hmm. And uh, some of the earliest songs I learned, I guess, the, the tunes I learned were, were Cajun tunes. I still, still play them occasionally.
3: <laughs> Is there a particular, uh, I'm thinking maybe early on, to help us better understand your passion and your love of all of these uh, wonderful forms of music, was there a particular incident or person that you met that helped you better understand mm-hmm. what this music represented?
4: No, I don't think there was. Uh, I, as I say, I was kind of a loner <laughs> as a kid, and I wanted to go my own way. Mm. I, I I didn't dress like the other kids did in high school. I wore lace legs and boots all the time because that was what I thought an explorer in Africa or someplace should wear. And uh, yeah, I think part of it was that um, I didn't didn't want anybody to teach me. I, I wanted to go my own way. But no, there was nobody around them studying folk music that I knew about. And, um, like, like the guitar. When I first got my guitar, I know now that there was lots of guitar playing in East Texas, but I, I only knew one guitar player, a man named Jelly Roll Roberts. <laughs> and I didn't like Jelly Roll. I didn't, didn't want to play the way he did, particularly. Um, it's all very complicated but um, I think I always conceived of folk music as the music of uh, a poorer class of people I mean financially poorer and I guess I I just felt a natural uh, sympathy for siding with them rather than with the higher parts of society Mm -hmm. I know in Crockett I, I, I mentioned that there were two distinct white traditions. There was the uh, upper-class white tradition, and a lot of the old people in town, who were probably good musicians and so forth, were were a part of that tradition. One of them turned out to be, by the way, the aunt of uh, Vigil Lindsay, the poet, whose work I greatly admired at the time. Mm. And I was just devastated to find once that he had been to town and I, into Crockett, and I hadn't known about it and hadn't gone to see him. He was visiting his aunt. Mm-hmm. He died before he came back. I I'd lost no time in <laughs> stirring up a sort of a relationship with the aunt so that the next time they would let me know maybe.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: That stemmed from my older sister Mary Jo's um, work. She was old enough enough older than me that she had gone to high school before we ever left Oklahoma. And um, In high school she studied the works of Rachel Lindsay and when we were washing dishes she used to recite Rachel Lindsay's poems for me. And I I just fell in love with the guy and the way he wrote. Uh, um, That was before I I knew about folk music. It was Mary Jo, the same sister that uh, later after she became a Pretty well-known advertising artist. Her husband was John Negi, who pioneered in television, making, teaching art by television classes.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: And um, but Mary Jo was very influential in my life.
0: We hope you're enjoying this interview with Sam Hinton on the Music History Project. Just wanted to plug really quick the NAM website. We actually have this full video interview posted on there. So if you head over to NAM.org, that's n-a-m-m.org slash library, and search for Sam Hinton, it'll pop up for you. In All of Its Glory. And if you scroll to the bottom of that page, you can see some tags. And one of the tags that we have is folk music. And you can see everyone in the oral history collection um, related to folk music, including Pete Seeger, who's been coming up in this interview um, in a a little bit, actually. He'll be talking more about Pete Seeger. Um, So, let's just jump back into this interview with Sam Hinton.
4: But I don't remember any of the people that made a tremendous impression on me. I know this... uh, black man and his wife that lived near Hurricane Bio in Crockett taught me several songs. And, uh, and I was interested in their whole way of life. I was interested in the fact that he used to go out plowing. He'd have a mule that pulled his plow, and he'd take along a lunch, and he would eat his lunch, and then he'd take a nap. And to do this, he stretched a rope between two trees, and he would lie down on the rope <laughs> with one foot on the ground, and he'd sleep comfortably. I, I thought that was pretty wonderful.
3: Do you remember any of those songs?
4: Yes, one of the songs he taught me was um, Tell old Bill when he leave home this morning Tell old Bill when he leave home this evening Tell old Bill when he leave home To let them downtown folks alone This morning, this evening, so soon That became one of my standbys. Mm. Old Bill gets shot while he's visiting downtown. And, uh, oh, I later heard that from another man too. Uh, just before we left Texas, I was a st- worker one summer for the biological survey in Walker County, Texas. and uh, One of our camps was camped near a place where a, a black sharecropper used to come down and uh, help us out and feed us and everything. and. He had a version of that song too. I think it was that song along with some others too that I first realized appeared in different versions and that that made an impression on me too. Then when I went to Texas a and I found in the library all sorts of books. And it was one of the songs my mother used to sing that she had grown up with in Gatesville that went, Oh grieve, oh grieve, my true love grieve. Must I love someone that don't love me? Must I go bound while you go free, and love somebody that don't love me? And that turned out to be a a verse. Well, other verses go, show that related to an old English song called "The Butcher's Boy," and that that had become a popular song at that time. Which was uh, "The Tavern in the Town." There is a tavern in the town. You remember that one? Mm-hmm.
3: Interesting.
4: And it was. Things like this that made me realize how much treasure there was in these old songs, how it showed how, how people related to each other and to different cultures and so forth. And 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 I started discovering that there were so many of the songs that I had grown up with in East Texas that um, were related to the old English songs. The first records I did for Decca way back in the 50s were um, following this principle. One was, what was the name of my record? The first one was Singing, singing Through the Land, and, and that try, I did several different versions of the same song
3: hmm.
4: that had come from different parts of the United States. My brother-in-law, John Nagy, helped me with the, Album cover on that. I did the artwork on the cover, and he he did the lettering. But in that, I I was showing how songs from New England were sung in East Texas and things like that. That's great. And showed how English songs were sung in New England for that matter.
3: <laughs> on those recordings that you did, those fifty some uh, recordings, did you um, get to choose those, or were they? Ones that were missing, and they asked you to record. No,
4: for the Library of Congress. Yes, sir. Uh, No, um, that was kind of a mess up. See, Alan Lomax wanted me to come and record a bunch of the East Texas songs that I had known, and um, at that time I was staying in a YMCA hotel in downtown Washington, and so I went back to the hotel that night and wrote out all the songs. Then I forgot to take that list with me. And the next day, I couldn't remember what the heck I was supposed to do. <laughs> so I just sang anything that popped into my head for the 58 songs. Is that right? And uh, I remember the and, and about one of them, which was an old folk song, the uh, then curator of the Archive of Folk Music in the Library of Congress said, Oh, you've got that arted up, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> that was the song, of Old Joe's Barroom, we always call it. I went down to old Joe's bar room, down on the corner by the square. Drinks were served as usual, and a goodly crowd was there. And I sang, let her go, let her go, God bless her, wherever she may be. She may search this wide world over, but she'll never find a man like me. That turns out to be a, a song related to a whole bunch of old world songs. Hmm. and um, It's been pretty well studied in the... in by folk scholars that I didn't know about at the time.
3: What others from that 58 that uh, you're particularly happy with or have a story for you?
4: Well, one of them was that song about Tell Old Bill. I remember doing that. That was one of the ones that Alan Lomax particularly liked, too. (laughs) We got to know Alan later. He came here for supper once when he was, uh, I think at that time he was, with the university in New York, and he was making a television program making a, a, not a television program, but a, a television library hmm. of uh, songs that you could approach from a lot of different directions and get music from Africa or music from South uh, America, or music from England or whatever you wanted. But uh, anyway, Alan was a very simpatico sort of person. Remember when he came to supper here, honey? And uh, he was doing that big show down at the uh new uh convention center. Mm. He had a television set set up so you could show the films he was taking. He was kind of nervous when he first met me, and he told his sister, Bess Lomax Hawes, who later became a good friend of mine, why I talked to Sam today, and he's just a good old Texas boy. There's nothing wrong with him. (laughs) 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 I never did feel like a good old Texas boy. Is that right? In Crockett, um, I wasn't happy with the people uh, of my own age in, in high school. I, did, I didn't like the high school much, and I didn't like the other kids. And I tried my best not to talk like them. And it was it, a it, it real bother to me when I... By the time I went back to uh, New York to be on the Major Bowes program, I um, was deliberately trying not to talk like an East Texan. And... Um, On that Major Bowes program, my friend Joe Hickerson, who was then curator of the Archive of Folk Music at the Library of Congress, found that he had a tape of that program. Really? And he gave it to me. And I I was amazed at how Texas I sounded. (laughs) I didn't want to sound that way. I think I don't have much of a Texas accent anymore. I think I've probably gotten over most of that.
1: So, uh, we are again listening to the Sam Hinton interview from 2003. Uh, and he just, uh, loved the stories that he just told. Um, and hearing some of those songs of him singing a couple of the, of the lines was just fantastic. And, uh, I was so fascinated by, the different versions of the songs in different regions. I think that that's such an amazing story. And so I'm really glad that he uh, highlighted some of that. Uh, and it's just been very fascinating to listen to him and, and learn a little bit more. And I definitely want to go do some more research now.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Ashley, you know, it's neat that he took advantage of the opportunity that was given him. You know, I think that, um, Wherever he would have been, he would have done the same thing. It's just so compelling that in Crockett, Texas, there were these amazing characters who had a love and passion for roots music and folk music that he found and um, and helped sort of discover, if not... Um, Uh, promote and uh, if nothing else to us listening into this interview now have a greater awareness of who those folks were and their music Um, and I think that's exactly what he had sought out to do so I think uh, I feel really good about that. Coming up in this next segment, he's going to be talking about some of our folk music heroes like Bob Dylan and Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie and Josh White. Wow, what a wonderful legend he was. Um, And another one that uh, he talks about briefly that I wanted to just say a few words about, and that is uh, Elizabeth Cotton. If you're not familiar with her, she was uh, a wonderful folk artist, singer, songwriter who lived to be 94 years old, passed away in 1987. So unfortunately, I never got a chance to interview her, but she is definitely on the list of people I really wish I had. Um, What a compelling life story she had when she was... um, I think eight or nine years old, she wrote what is now one of the standard American folk songs called Freight Train. And she did this by borrowing her brother's guitar. She was left-handed. He was right-handed. She put it on her lap, upside down and backwards, and um, played the bass notes with her fingers and the melody with her thumb. And this was later... A style that uh, has been now considered cotton-picking, which I think is fantastic. So for me, she was just a beautiful soul uh, and it comes across in her music. Um, going down the road feeling bad, what a Tremendous folk song that is. I mean, it's unbelievable. Sometimes I think about folk music and I think it sort of appeared on the seventh day. You know, uh, you just always had it in your life. It's always been a part of who we are as a nation. And um And it's so neat to think, wow, okay, that's the person who actually wrote that. And she lived long enough to know it became a standard and that people like me, born in Minnesota, were singing songs like When I Get Home. Uh, I I think that uh, she would be very proud about that. And I know Sam was too. Sam wanted to promote these people for the exact same reason, because these are compelling musicians and songwriters who gave us wonderful songs about our heritage Uh, good, bad, and ugly, and I think that those are the kind of things that make this interview to me so um, precious, and what a privilege it was to sit toe-to-toe to this guy and, and hear these stories. So back to the interview, and back to some of these legends uh, of folk music. Thanks to Sam Hinton.
3: Tell us a little bit about your performances, in terms of... Uh, the festivals and so on that you've been doing up until real recently.
4: Yeah, well, fortunately, my work at the aquarium and, and at um, for relations with schools involved the possibility of taking a lot of time off. Um, at that time, the university had a policy that you couldn't amass overtime. Hmm. I mean, if you amassed it, you had to take it off <laughs> instead of getting paid for it. And... My job, both those jobs were jobs that did require a lot of staying on the job until it was completed. I'd go to a high school or something in Los Angeles and to plug UCSD, and um, the whole trip counted as part of my time, you see. But anyway, I found that I could take off time very readily, so I, I did, and was able to spend most of my summers free. I, I taught every summer up at Idlewild School of Music and the Arts up in the mountains, in Riverside County. And um, I went to all the Berkeley Folk Festivals, in fact, Barry Olivier started them. I, I first gave a joint concert up there, I mean, it was in a concert series, with Carl Sandburg and uh, Josh White. <laughs> he, those two and myself were the, the whole series of three people singing folk songs. This is in the early 50s sometimes, I think. Hmm.
3: That must have been fun.
4: It was lots of fun.
3: What sort of guy was Josh White? Did you get to know him a little bit?
4: No, I, I only met him a few times. I, I didn't have much use for him because of his, uh, his conscious theatricality. Um, one of his tricks in concerts was to conceal a razor blade in his right hand someplace and he'd cut his E string on his guitar with it and the string would break so without stopping he would replace the string while he was still singing the song <laughs> it was all just a, a nice trick you know but I, I admired him very much and admired his work and learned a lot of his songs I did his songs though with my own kind of accompaniment I never tried to um, emulate his very skillful guitar playing
3: Did you try to emulate anybody's guitar playing?
4: No, I I didn't. That's what I thought. (laughs) (laughs) In recent years, I've realized how much more there is to the guitar than I ever got out of it.
3: (laughs) But at the same time, you created sort of your own style. Yes, I did. How would you explain that?
4: It's hard to explain. It was a a combination, I think, of uh, chords with... uh, bass leading notes, and uh, I was limited to the keys that I could manipulate easily, I couldn't do anything in B-flat or E-flat, <laughs> in fact when I first started playing the guitar I had a stiff wrist, I had an operation after that and I was able to bend my wrist, but I never did learn to make a barre, so I couldn't play And That was true when I was with Ted Mack's Precision Rhythm Review up on the stage. Nobody could hear me anyway, but <laughs> that was before I discovered capos. <laughs> and they, they were not very well known then. So I used to try to struggle through an E-flat, and i just play on four strings of the guitar, not doing any bass notes at all.
3: Just for the curiosity, um, what are your thoughts about electric guitars and folk music?
4: I don't see anything wrong with them. <laughs> I think it's a Natural outgrowth. I I think one of the things that's wrong with folk music performance today is that uh, so many people look on it as something that is sacrosanct. But when you get right down to it, you shouldn't be using a guitar at all if you're going to do the old folk music. It should be unaccompanied, because that's the Anglo-Celtic style. It's interesting to me, too, that um, we used to think of the Irish Tradition, for example, as being a, a pure tradition of folk music. But today, it's the Irish groups who use the bouzouki as one of their main instruments, <laughs> which wasn't even known in Ireland, of course, until fairly recent. Until they started it, they sometimes play the Ilan pipes with their groups, but they they have no compunction about electrifying the bass if it sounds better, and I I think that's perfectly all right. I've always felt that Bob Dylan was more faithful to his tradition that he'd grown up with after he switched to an electric guitar than he was when he was imitating Woody Guthrie. (laughs) Because that was strictly an imitation. When he first started, he was a great admirer of Woody Guthrie's and had tried to sing like him and play like him and everything else. We got to know him at some of the uh, Newport Folk Festivals. I used to go there every summer in um, Newport, Rhode Island. Another thing I've always liked to observe about people is how much they enjoy listening to other people. (laughs) And um, Bob Dylan kind of failed in that respect. He didn't much enjoy listening to other singers. He wasn't like Guy Carawan or um, Pete Seeger. Pete loves to listen to everybody.
3: And you?
4: I, I like to listen to everybody, too. <laughs> yeah. Pete came to see us a number of times. And it was very educational for me, the way uh, to talk to him. See, he was raised in the classical tradition, too. His father was a classical musician, mm. and his mother. Uh, no, I guess his, Pete's mother wasn't a musician, was she? Um, Pete's father divorced her and later married Ruth Crawford Seeger, who became well-known as a folk collector and so forth. She was a musician. Um, Pete, off stage, is kind of reserved. On stage, he's kind of a rowdy <laughs> person getting right close to the audience. And I remember when he was here once, staying with us, um, there was a grunion run. I thought he might like to see a grunion run. He wouldn't believe me at first. He knew about snipe hunts, <laughs> and he thought this is something like a snipe hunt. But I'll never forget down by the beach and tennis club. We walked down the beach, and the grunion were running very thickly all along there. And um, Pete got so excited. I never saw him just like a little kid. He he's is a, a man of great uh, enthusiasms.
3: It tells a great story about Elizabeth Cotton.
4: Yes. who
3: is was one of my favorites.
4: You know, she learned to play on her brother's guitar when he wasn't looking. And so she didn't dare restring it, but she was left-handed, so she played it upside down. She used her right hand where the people mostly used the left hand. That put her thumb on the high strings instead of the bass strings. <laughs> I... Um, Gave a joint concert with her once up at, uh, I think, Palomar College. And in our retiring room, we weren't dressing for, not that kind of a thing, but um, she showed me how she played the guitar, gave me a little speech about it.
3: Well, that must have been fun.
4: That, that was great. It was one of the nicest things about... My experiences in folk music was being able to get to know so many good folk musicians and to travel to so many good places and hear so much good music. Like Joe Hickerson, who became the curator of the Archive of Folk Music at the Library of Congress. Joe is retired now. and lives in Akokik, Maryland. He still, um, still sings a lot. But He made a bunch of records for... Sandy and Carolyn Payton with their record company. What's it called? Uh, it's a well-known record brand, anyway. And um, they do mostly folk music.
3: The Bear Family? or
4: No, Bear is in Germany. That's right. Yes. I, I did, they're the ones that put out my CD, which was made from these old Library of Congress records that I made in 1938.
3: Is that still available? <laughs>
4: That's oh great. yes, it's, it's it's available now. I'll, I'll I'll give you a copy before you go. In fact, I, I, have, yeah. I have several of them.
3: Just a quick um, question about your particular instruments. Have you come to find um, a, a particular make and model of a guitar that you liked best?
4: No, I. Uh, after I went on the road with the show troupe, I had, a, when I first went on the road with Major Bowes, I had an old beat-up guitar that we'd bought for $5 from one of my sister's girlfriends. Mm-hmm. And, uh, boyfriends, I mean. And, um, but while I was on the road, I met a very fine guitar player named Russ, what was Russell's, his last name was Russell. And George Russell. And he became a well-known uh, accompanist in LA, and uh, he was with a group called the Mimicking Melodiers, and he had an old Washburn guitar that his folks had given him just before he went on the road. Then after he went out, they won a lot of money on a horse race or something, and they bought him a nice Gibson. And so he sold me his old Washburn for about $50. And I, that's the one I used for years and years. That was in 1937 I got. and I still use that guitar. Is that
3: right?
4: Yeah, it's my favorite. I must say, when I re- announced that I was retiring from folk music and not singing in public anymore, I gave my last program down the hill here at uh, Children's School for the San Diego Folk Heritage Group in their annual festival, and they made quite a thing of it for me. And they, one thing they arranged was that I got a new guitar. It was a Carvin guitar, and it's it, I can plug it in if I want to, play it electrically, or I can play it acoustically. It's good for both. It's a nice guitar. But I still like my old one better. I use soft strings on it. I use uh, what they call silk on steel. Kind of a folk string. And uh, it works just just right for me. So I've never wanted another different guitar.
3: Well, this has been just wonderful. I really appreciate your
1: time. Oh, well, it's a pleasure, man. Yeah,
3: thank you.
1: What a wonderful podcast. Uh, I so, so much enjoyed listening to him and just hearing his, uh, just all the stories. And I mean, I can almost picture him uh, walking around in Texas at the farms and hearing these stories. And uh, it was just such a great... Uh, he's such a great storyteller and, uh, definitely want to now dive in a little deeper, uh, to some of this, some of these, uh, history stories that he was telling. So fantastic podcast. And, uh, yeah, just really great. And I definitely want to now go into more folk music, uh, history and searching of all that stuff.
2: Well said. You know, I don't pause uh, on these podcasts as often as I really should to thank the tremendous team that I get to work with. Um, Ashley does all the pre-production of these uh, interviews and um, podcasts. And uh, Mike does all the post-production to put everything together, and it's just awesome. Um, I really feel privileged to be a part of this, and to share the stories of some of the most compelling people that we have in our collection is definitely a driving force for me. Um, How wonderful that... um, Sam, who passed away in 2009, is being remembered right now in 2021. I think that's super, super cool. And we're learning from him. We're learning from the past that he was so passionate about. You know, in 1957, he started the San Diego uh, Folk Festival, which um, has recently been um, released as CDs and DVDs. And I think they're coming to the Internet in full production. Um, to showcase some of the artists that he had a big hand in bringing to those stages way back then and for very many years. So his legacy continues to grow and uh, to be appreciated. And I'm very grateful for that.
0: Yes, I'm very excited to just go listen to some more folk music now. (laughs) I feel like that happens after every podcast episode we record. I just want to go listen to all this music, but that is not a bad thing, and I encourage everyone listening to do the same. And thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Music History Project. We will be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. And until then, bye bye Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino.
1: And Ashley Allison.
0: If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at librarynam.org.